Today's teaching text comes from Hebrews 6, 10 through 20. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may greatly be encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Josh, and I'm the executive pastor here at TGC. And it's my honor to be able to share a little bit with you this morning of something God's been stirring in my heart recently. A few years ago, uh, I was in Prospect Park with my family, and it was a beautiful summer day. We were there with friends, and everybody was having fun. And then my oldest, Ruthie, uh, she runs up to me at one point and says, Dad, Dad, i got to use the bathroom. And it was clear she had waited until it was really urgent. And it's one of these moments that parents dread where there's no bathroom, like, anywhere close, and your kid has to go, and they have to go right then. So uh, I started scanning around for a solution, and way off across this field, I saw a portageon that I didn't remember being there before, and I thought, okay. You know, that's what we got to do. We got to make it to the Portageon. So Ruthie and I start making our way across this field. And as we got closer, I noticed there was a, a group of like four or five kind of fit looking guys that were standing nearby, but they weren't quite close enough to look like they were in line and they were having their own conversation. And so I looked at the little indicator on the door, you know, that tells you whether or not somebody's using the toilet, and I have to say, it wasn't crystal clear, you know, it was, um, it was definitely way more green than red, you know, I'm talking like 80-20 green, and um, Ruthie's reiterating that, hey, we got to do this thing, so uh, I tried the door, and sure enough, it, it opened, but we got it open far enough to realize there was a man inside, and I let the door go and stepped back. And as we stepped back, it was the oddest thing. This, this group of guys that had been over there chatting, all of a sudden their conversation stopped and they, uh, they gave their attention to us. And I was thinking, man, this is, this is kind of weird. And about that moment, the door opens again and Mayor de Blasio steps out of the portageon. Um, now, <clears throat> I don't know... I don't know the protocol for how you're supposed to greet the mayor. You know, like, I know there's stuff with presidents, like what you do and what you don't do, but I didn't want to shake his hand. 
And uh, felt like it would have been weird to salute. I mean, I just saw him in the bathroom, but um, he's tall. Did you guys know that? He's a tall guy. Left the seat up, though. Um, so as I was walking back to our group, I was thinking to myself, this is the person we've chosen to govern the entire city. Like, largest city in America, complex problems. We've gone, this is the guy. He can, he can solve it. And he doesn't know how to use a porta potty. <laughs> we've got his team whose solemn duty is to secure him. And somehow, the, t the small task force of me and my four-year-old daughter breached the perimeter. Um, now, I haven't had that many run-ins with the mayor, so I've spent, I've spent a fair amount of time reflecting on that experience. And it occurs to me that, and it's a given, you know, this comparison has its limitations, but I've had a similar line of thinking about God before. You know, he's in charge of the whole world, the arc of history, asks us to trust him with everything, and then something happens, and we think, you're telling me God couldn't even handle that? I can't believe God allowed things to turn out that way. You know, how can I begin to trust you with, with the whole of my life when you allowed me to go through that heartbreak? Or when it's been over a year and I still don't have a job? Or my loved one has been diagnosed with that health condition? <clears throat> it's funny to joke about the mayor fumbling with the basics, but when we feel let down by God, that's truly a painful experience. This series we've been in over the last several weeks is on the faithfulness of God. I feel like my life experience uh, supports trust in God's faithfulness as much as anyone, and I still struggle deeply with self-reliance. I don't know if you can relate to that. I feel like the culture of our city sort of contributes to it in some way, but if I'm honest, that tendency was in my heart far before I lived in New York. It's not particularly detectable when things are going well, when they're humming along, but when things go sideways, where is my confidence located? Is it in God's character and promises, or is it in my own ability to find my way through? So I put this question to us for reflection. When life gets difficult, what is my practical hope in? As some of the other messages in this series have reminded us, Real suffering, loss, and pain are a part of the human experience. They come for all of us from time to time. But even between those valleys, we deal with the daily grind of smaller adversities. Each one taken individually is far from devastating, but cumulatively they can have the effect of truly demoralizing us. So we find ourselves wandering around what often feels like hostile territory, Enduring trials, considering whether we can actually trust God to carry us through and into the abundant life he's promised. This passage we're looking at together comes in the middle of a letter intended to encourage persecuted Jewish believers not to lose faith in Jesus and his message. 
They were wandering around hostile territory, enduring trials and resistance, considering whether they could go on trusting in God to see them through. So the writer of Hebrews, seeking to encourage them to stay the course, reminds them of God's dealings with Abraham. He too found himself wandering around hostile territory, trying to hang on, wondering if he could trust God to fulfill his promises. The first century Jewish believers who were the first recipients of this letter would have immediately had a bunch of associations. The writer is employing a device by recalling one of the central stories of their religious upbringing. It's a bit like when we start to tell a story to our kids that we've told them again and again and again, and immediately a whole bunch of morals and understandings spring to mind. He does this in order to provide a meaningful reservoir of hope in their trials. So we're presented with Abraham's life as a model of God's faithfulness and our interplay with it. So let's examine how it actually looked at different points and the real dynamics of how this works and see if we can find it to be a rallying point for our confidence in God as well. But before we carry on, let's pray and ask God's spirit to lead us. We thank you, God, that you are faithfully here with us, that when we gather in your name, that there you are in our midst. Thank you that you want us to know you. So we invite your Holy Spirit to come and to stir our hearts, to know you more, to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in Genesis 15, God reiterates his promises to Abram to make him the father of a great nation rooted in this land God has brought him to, blessing him and his innumerable descendants that through them he might bless the whole world. Abram had long ago left Ur, the land of his father. Now, the Genesis narrative covers that life-altering decision in just a few verses, but I want us to take a moment to consider the faith that required Abram to embark on this journey. These words from Mark Sayers help us get there. I like to imagine Abraham looking every bit the madman, starting out into the frightening void of the dark desert, feeling a pull, a powerful toe toward a nameless, unseen God. Behind him, all the might of the city the walls of the grain storehouses. From the towering pyramid-shaped temple, he can hear the drums, screams, and pagan chanting. In his gut, the doubt, the conflicting emotions, the fear that everything he's believed until now is wrong. The city represented safety, comfort, the known. In front of him, the desert representing death, darkness, mystery, the unknown. Then the resolution, the determination, the trust, followed by the first step away from the city, away from Ur. Abram heard God say, leave your homeland, leave your family, leave everything you know, and I will bless you with land and make you the father of a great nation. And here's the crazy part. Abram did it. He walked off the map. And many years had passed. By this point, Abram and his wife Sarah were beyond the age of childbearing. So back to Genesis 15, when God once again proclaims his promise to Abram, he had the audacity to respond to God by saying, how do I know 
I'll receive this promise. God does something extraordinary. Rather than rebuking Abram for not believing his word, he makes an oath. As was the custom, he instructed Abram to bring certain animals, which Abram does, cutting them in half and laying the pieces opposite one another. Then the Lord passes through the pieces, making a covenant with Abram to keep his promise. So what do we make of this strange story? What did it mean to Abram and what does it mean to us? The first thing I think we're to draw from it is that God goes out of his way to assure us he can be trusted. Recently, I reread a book by John Mark Comer called God Has a Name. And as Michael mentioned, we're really, really excited to have John Mark here with us in a few weeks. Uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but in addition to the Sunday morning, we're having a, a mini conference-style event with him on Monday, September 9th, on the topic of practicing the way of Jesus in the context of Brooklyn. And it's going to be amazing, well worth your time. I really encourage you to come. And all the details are at tgcparkslope.com practicing. But in this book, God Has a Name, he unpacks what Exodus 34, 6 to 8 reveal about who God is. Many scholars argued this passage in Exodus 34 is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. So some quick context. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has called Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. With God's help, they escape the Egyptians, and they're camped at the base of Mount Sinai, where Moses is meeting with Yahweh. He asks the Lord to show him his glory. And Yahweh says... I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. God tells Moses to come back in the morning. And when he does, the Lord passes in front of him and proclaims his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it goes on a bit from there. But I want to share a little of how John Mark unpacks that last phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, love and faithfulness is hesed and emet. Hesed is a sweeping panoramic word that we really have no equivalent for in English. It can be translated as steadfast love or unfailing love or covenant loyalty. Emet is translated here as faithfulness. It means truth. It can also be translated as trustworthy. It has the idea of reliability. Yahweh can be counted on. Now, when you put hesed and emet together, it's incendiary. Abounding in love and faithfulness is called a hendiatus. A hendiatus is a literary device where two nouns are smashed together to help define each other, meaning God's love is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is his love. Hesed and Amet are all about God's loyalty, how he never, ever abandons his people, but he's faithful to the bitter end. 
no matter the cost. So steadfast love and faithfulness are core to God's character. But many centuries before, back in the desert, Abram is still getting to know this Yahweh. And there's no child yet, let alone a nation to bless the world through. So when Abram asks for further assurance, God takes an oath. In those days, trust would be placed in the word of a man because he invoked the name of God as a guarantee. So much reverence is given to an oath, a promise where someone calls God as a witness, that it serves as sufficient proof and puts an end to all disputes. People swear by someone greater, as it says in verse 16, because they lack the due authority in themselves, so they borrow it from somewhere else. How much more should God, who removes all doubt between others by his authority, awaken confidence in what he promises himself? If when the name of God is pronounced by a man, it carries so much weight, how much should it have when God himself swears by his own name? See how tenderly God indulges our lack of faith, like a patient father. He sees that Abram is not fully at ease merely with the promise. So to give him further assurance, he adds an oath. This makes it clear how important it is for us to rest confidently in God's goodness and faithfulness to us. Verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And Abram believed God. Against all odds, he trusted Yahweh to keep his word and found him to be faithful. In fact, God was willing to go to incredible lengths to fulfill this promise to Abraham, which brings us to the next observation we make as we can follow on in this story. God's promise-keeping is not contingent on our performance. While God certainly did fulfill his promises to Abram in the end, he took a long time from Abram's perspective. He had to have been thinking, God isn't guiding me like I thought. He's not providing like he promised. And can you blame him? I mean, he must have thought, how will my descendants outnumber the stars when I don't have a single child? Perhaps Abram wondered if he trusted God with something God couldn't handle. We can certainly empathize with Abram's disappointment as he waited on God's promises to be fulfilled. But let's flip it around for a minute and try to imagine the narrative from God's perspective. Abram makes some huge mistakes. He offers his wife Sarah to Pharaoh as his sister. He goes to Hagar to try to engineer an heir for himself. Might God have thought, I've promised to give this man everything he needs if he would just stop trying to take things into his own hands. Perhaps God has trusted us with something we can't handle. Last fall, I was taking my older two kids, Ruthie and Jack, to school. And they were in different schools, so we had a system. Uh, the kids would ride their scooters over to... Uh, to PS39 where Ruthie goes, and once we got her uh, situated in her line in the schoolyard, then Jack and I would walk over and we would take the bus uh, up to his school in another part of the neighborhood. So uh, typically, when we got to the bus stop, which was directly in front of Colson, 
uh, at 6th Avenue and 9th Street, Jack would start hounding me about, hey, let's go inside and get a treat while we wait for the bus. And um, I was pretty good. Almost always I resisted uh, these appeals. But on this one particular day, it was pouring the rain. And you can get to the bus stop, and there's a little number you can text, and it'll tell you how far away the bus is. And it said, like, 23 minutes or something crazy like that. So I said, okay, let's go inside uh, and wait for the bus. And so as we walk in, I say, Jack, I'll order the pastry. You get us a seat. And so I go up. I order the little teddy bear pastry that uh, he loves from there. And once I've paid for it, I turn around, I find Jack sitting there at the table, and who should be directly next to him but my old friend, the mayor. And um, I think, okay, this is going to be interesting. I sit down, and uh, Jack is kind of, he's fidgeting with this stick that he found outside somewhere. He's been carrying it around for a day or two, and he's kind of doing that at the table, and um, after a minute or two, the mayor says something like, um, oh, there's no greater toy than that, is there? And uh, I'm thinking, obviously, the mayor doesn't know some of the things they've done recently with Nerf guns, but um, <laughs> he's being polite, so you know, I'm thinking of, of how to engage, but Jack beats me to it. He says, yeah, I like to carry it around and, and hit pigeons with it. <laughs> and I was like, aghast because I had never heard Jack say anything about hitting pigeons with a stick. I, there was nothing in our history together that, that hinted at violence toward pigeons. And um, so I'm, I'm ready to launch into that parenting in public thing you do where like you're speaking to your kid, but it's really for the other adults that are in earshot to like assure them that like morally you don't approve of what your child has just done. So I'm just about to do that, but then the woman who's meeting with the mayor, she covers for us. She jumps in, she's like, oh yeah, pigeons are nasty, you know. <laughs> None of us like pigeons, do we? And uh, unfortunately, Jack, it seems, was encouraged by that assurance. Um, so he comes back with, yeah, you can hit them and kill them <laughs> and eat them. And... I thought, oh, my goodness, like, <clears throat> I don't know if the woman was in politics, but she didn't seem to know the spin for that one, so it just hung out there in the air, and uh, I was thinking, God has given me this awesome responsibility of parenthood, you know, of raising these four kids to be, like, agents of renewal in the culture, and... Here, my son is giving the mayor the impression that I allow him to eat pigeons. So if my first encounter with him left me thinking this guy's in a little over his head, I'm pretty sure his second encounter with me left him thinking the same. And probably we're both right. Um, but how many times did Abram think, I'm not sure I can count on God? How many times did God think something similar about Abram? You see, the scriptures reveal God as a deeply relational person. And so, in these moments where we lose trust, despite all the reasons we have for confidence, they register with him. The thing about God is, he seems not to be willing to relate primarily to us based on our worst moments. 
So whatever those moments with Abram felt like to God, he allowed the feeling to pass, and he remained faithful anyway. These ancient Near Eastern covenants always involved the shedding of blood. The phrase was actually to cut a covenant. The animals are cut off, and the implication as you walk through is if I don't keep my word, may my fate be the same. May I be cut off just like these animals. As the other party to the covenant, Abram typically would have been on the hook to keep his end or be cut off too. But here, God passes through the pieces by himself. In this way, he's saying that even if Abraham and his family don't hold up their end, he'll still keep his promise. He'll redeem and bless the world through them. And if blood has to be spilled, it won't come from Abraham. Unfortunately, time and again, the descendants of Abraham failed to fulfill their calling as God's covenant people. All covenant breakers must be cut off. That's always the punishment for covenant breaking. Which brings us to this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. I want to give you one more thought from John Mark Comer on this. Jesus came to do what Abraham and Israel were supposed to do but never could. He came to bless the world. All because thousands of years ago, Yahweh made a promise. When Israel failed, Yahweh was faithful. I love how Paul puts it in his letter to Timothy. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Paul is right to see that Yahweh's faithfulness is intrinsic to his name, his nature. The truth is, if our redemption rested on our faithfulness, it would be more than we could handle. But the good news is, it only depends on God's. And he handled it for us. Through Jesus, God has made a new covenant with us. And the currency of this covenant is grace. As we trust in Jesus, we are restored to our Father in heaven. When it says in verse 12 of our passage, through faith and patience inherit what has been promised, that word inherit takes away any notion of merit. These promises are ours by right of adoption. So do we know the promises God's made to us? And do we believe they're the promises we actually need? Are we willing through the ups and downs of life to hold on and trust God to deliver on them? The question we need to ask ourselves is, how practically are we relying on his promises? The city sort of beats them out of us over time, so I want to offer us a little sanctuary to hear and take hold of them again this morning. I've selected a handful of promises that God's made to his children. And as I read these, I want to invite you just where you are to just close your eyes for a moment or two. You can open your hands in front of you if you like. And just hear these words afresh. This is our inheritance. 
Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Being confident of this, that, we, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can open your eyes. What are the deepest longings we experience as human beings? To be known, to be accepted as we are, to be truly loved, to know that no matter what challenges we face, we won't be alone, that in the end, there's, there's something more, some deeper meaning beyond this life. These are the very substance of what God has promised us, that we are loved beyond words, that we belong, that he will never leave us, that whatever we go through, he will be walking alongside us compassionately, working for our good, and that in the end, he will remake the world and we will live and reign with him forever. These promises are issued by the most trustworthy person in the universe, by the God who hung on a tree to rescue and restore us. Such love is the firmest foundation imaginable for our trust. But we don't live in the fully realized kingdom of God. We live in the same tension as Abram and those first century Jewish believers in between the already and the not yet, which brings us to this beautiful image at the end of the passage, which claims, 
Hope in God's faithfulness is an anchor for the soul. It secures us until all is fulfilled. Our souls apparently are of a nature that they need an anchor. The uncomfortable reality that we like to avoid is that our life is not in our own hands anyway. No matter how secure we feel at times, another storm is bound to come and remind us that any sense of control we have over our lives is an illusion. So either you have God as your anchor or you practically have something else and less reliable as your anchor. And it's good in the safety of a space like this to honestly consider the answer to that. Commenting on this passage, N.T. Wright remarks, but just as the anchor is let down through the midst of the water to a dark hidden place, and while it remains there, the ship remains, the ship that is exposed to the waves safe, remains safely in its station so that it is not swept away. So our hope is fixed on the unseen God. When we are bound to God in this way, even though we have to contend with continual storms, we are safe from the danger of shipwreck. Jesus has gone in, not to the temple in Jerusalem, but to the true sanctuary in the innermost courts of heaven, into the very presence of the loving Father. He's done so on our behalf. He's there in the very presence of God like an anchor. We are attached to him as by a great metal cable. As long as we don't let go of the cable, we're anchored to the presence of God. All the winds, tides, and storms that may come can't shift us. As it says in verse 19, the anchor is firm and secure. We aren't promised that there won't be any storms. In fact, the provision of an anchor implies that there will be. What we're promised is that he will bring us through. A few more thoughts from Professor Wright. God is saying, if I don't surely bless you, may my name be mud forever. God is making promises to Abraham, then swearing an oath that he would indeed keep them. Two unchangeable things. God can't lie in either of them. This is why the promise can and must be regarded as firm and secure, and why we can hold on to hope and persevere in faith. Doing this isn't whistling in the dark. We don't have faith in faith, as people sometimes suggest. Christian hope isn't optimism, a vague sense that things will probably turn out all right. Christian faith is trusting and going on trusting through thick and thin in the God who made unbreakable promises and will certainly keep them. Christian hope is looking ahead to a time when, according to those promises, God will make the world over anew, completing the work he began in Jesus. And it's on Jesus whom the whole thing rests. So what do we do when we find ourselves in the crucible of those moments where God's not guiding us like we thought, where he's not providing for us in the way we expected? What are we going to do? Our passage instructs us to let the mood and the circumstances pass and hold anchor, ride it out, Hebrews 10 says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. God has a track record of promise keeping. 
His heart toward you is trustworthy. But I believe there's another aspect to our application here besides simply getting through the storm. What do we do, what do we live into when the storm passes? So years ago, my wife Jess and I had been dating for a few years and uh, I was utterly convinced that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her and so in the, the zenith of my romantic instincts, I planned this elaborate proposal and um, I left these little notes for her throughout her week that explained that I wanted to take her on a trip and that the destination was gonna be a surprise. As the week went on, I, I gave her a note that had two weather forecasts. One was for Philadelphia and the other was for Phoenix. And I said, pack a bag for each and when the time comes, I'll tell you which bag to bring. So um, the week went on, we got to the day and um, she got another note at her office that said, um, all right, go and get a taxi to JFK. I've picked up the bag and I'll be there. So she got to the airport and um, I was there with the boarding passes for London uh, because London was this like really special place for us. We had been dreaming of being able to take a trip there together and the weather was essentially the same that week as Philly. And so I had the bag, she was prepared and we set off to London um, I proposed, somehow she said yes, and it was a beautiful couple of days there. And when we flew back, I had one more surprise in store. So we, we landed uh, in New York, and I told her uh, the trip's not over yet. We're not going home just yet. We're gonna fly down to Florida to celebrate with our families. And uh, I had arranged for one of her best friends to uh, meet us there at the airport with the other bag, and so we just swapped the bags, and uh, we went to the gate to catch this flight down to, uh, to Florida. And uh, not everything went according to plan. Um, our flight was delayed and ultimately canceled, and uh, they said, don't worry, we've got you seats on the 6 a.m. flight, we'll get you down there first thing in the morning. But by the time of night that it was, we were kind of doing the math and thinking, if we went home to our apartments, we'd only get like a couple hours sleep before we'd have to get the train back. And so we said, we're just gonna sleep at the airport. And uh, we laid next to this um, elevator, or escalator, sorry, this escalator that sounded like it was in labor. I don't know if like <laughs> JFK somehow becomes like a bird sanctuary in the wee hours of the morning. There were like birds everywhere and we didn't get much sleep, but, but it was fine. We were like riding high and we got down, got down to Florida, and um, it was a beautiful, beautiful experience. I have this family friend, Julio, who had a home on a little island uh, off the Gulf Coast of Florida, and he hosted us. So we got Jess's family and my family onto this boat, and we went over to this little island, and um, it felt like, like a secret place, you know, like there were probably other people there, but I don't remember seeing any of them, you know, it just felt intimate, and... Um, it was such a sweet time of celebration. Here were these two families that, that were becoming, you know, this, this new larger family. And uh, we just spent the days out on the boat, fishing, laughing, came home and, and you know, made a big feast for dinner. And uh, for Jess and I especially, there was just this sense of, of commitment and uh, of being able to just, you know, begin to start building uh, a life on that foundation. 
But in talking later to our friend Julio, we learned that shortly before we arrived, he had been out on a fishing expedition, and as is prone to happen in this part of the world, a big, big storm blew in like out of nowhere, and uh, there was no time to get back to shore. And so he did the only thing you can do in that circumstance, and that is he dropped his anchor and he relied on it to hold the boat steady through the wind and the waves, and, and he rode out the storm. And uh, he made it, made it back to shore to, to host us in the coming days. And it occurs to me that if, if that anchor hadn't been trustworthy, all the beauty and richness of our experience there wouldn't have been possible. Because the anchor was reliable, Julio made it through the storm, And on the other side, we experience this intimacy of the secret place, this profound sense of belonging, family. I think some of the best pictures we have of the kingdom are celebrations of the fruition of these promises. I think if we could see our short life here on this side of eternity from God's perspective, I think we might see that all of those best, like, island celebration moments of our lives are connected to riding out the storms, hanging on. When you trust God's heart toward you, it not only allows you to ride out the storms, but it enables an intimate fellowship, even a trusting obedience. It's hard to live in Jesus' way if you don't really believe he wants you to flourish. But when you know the depths of his love and the lengths to which he's willing to go to keep his promises, you can navigate the everyday ups and downs with a joyful confidence. An abundant life can be built on the unshakable foundation of God's love and faithfulness. As Caleb talked about last week, this trust is nurtured in genuine relationship and daily showing up to experience his love. Abiding with Jesus produces a resilient faith that doesn't grow weary at the first sign of turbulence. Even still, we'll falter at times. It was after God had made this oath to Abram that he and Sarah uh, still took matters into their own hands with Hagar. This is why Jesus' perfect obedience And his having taken the penalty for our inevitable failings is such a comfort. But we shouldn't let God's mercy make us flippant about where we place our trust. God is forgiving, but sin is not. It has real consequences. So we should learn from our mistakes rather than becoming apathetic about them. In the words of Jesus as he prepared to go to the cross, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. The form this takes is a steadfast confidence that we are loved and that God can be counted on to keep his promises. As the band comes back up, recall with me the beginning of our passage. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. 
We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Some of us are right in the midst of one of those raging storms at the moment. And all we need to do is to hold on, to know that the anchor is firm and secure, can be trusted. Others of us are just feeling generally discouraged by those daily adversities. And perhaps we need to have our hope renewed by meditating on God's good and precious promises. And perhaps some of us need to activate the hope we have because of God's faithfulness by taking steps of trusting obedience. Wherever you are, in just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to respond. And uh, we'll be singing some songs. Um, There are rugs down here on the front. If you would like to come forward and just have uh, a moment of prayer on your own, we'd love for you to do that. There will also be people along the sides Uh, And it would be our privilege to pray for you. But there's no greater reminder of God's love and loyalty to us than this meal we take together every week. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to ask you to consider these words from Brennan Manning. But there is one abundant source of trust to which we must return again and again. It flows from the barren rock of Golgotha, at the feet of the crucified Christ. Contemplate the incomparable love of Jesus as he suffocates to death. There is no greater love than this. For a few minutes, stay face to face with the dying Jesus and hear him whisper, I'm dying to be with you. The same love yesterday on Calvary, today in our hearts, and forever in heaven. Jesus crucified is not merely a heroic example to the church. He is the power and wisdom of God, his love capable of transforming our cowardly, distrustful hearts into hearts strong in the trust that they are loved. We don't have to do anything except let our unworthy, ungrateful selves be loved as we are. Trust happens. You will trust him to the degree that you know you're loved by him. The splendor of a human heart which trusts that it is loved gives God more pleasure and delight than Westminster Cathedral, the Sistine Chapel, and all other human glories combined. Why does our trust offer such immense pleasure to God? Because trust is the preeminent expression of love. Thus, it may mean more to Jesus when we say, I trust you, than when we say, I love you. Trinity Grace Park Slope, you are loved to the grave and back. And the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is the most trustworthy foundation for your life. Our souls need an anchor, and this love is as good as it gets, firm and secure. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, would you meet us now by your spirit as we sing, as we pray, as we receive this meal. Help us to receive your love, to cling to your faithfulness, 
and to live lives of joyful confidence and trusting obedience. Lead us now as we respond. Amen. As you're ready, I invite you to come to receive the meal, to pray, and let's sing together.